Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 115. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're also joined by Nicholas Karodi and Ethel Baroana Paul. Nicholas, who's sitting with me here in our uh, LA recording studio, is the editor-in-chief of our recently published quarterly print journal, Ed. Ethel, who we're connecting with from her hometown of Barcelona, is a critic, writer, curator, and co-founder of DPR Barcelona. Welcome to you both. Hi. Thank you so much, Paul. So, Ethel, I'd like to start with you telling us a little bit about DPR Barcelona. I know that you've been working in the world of uh, architectural print for quite a while, so I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, the backstory behind DPR. What motivated you to to start that and focus on on print in particular? Yeah, well, we start uh, 10 years ago now, in 2007, and let's say it was the our desire of starting the publishing house is what was the output of several experiences, uh, publishing and writing for magazines and for other publishing houses as editors of several books. And, you know, we are both of us, Cesar Reyes, who is my associate. Uh, we are uh, lovers, book lovers, bookworms, as simple as that. So we decide that on those years, we decide that let's do it because we have enough experience. We have been working for other magazines, other publishing houses for more than five years. So we know the business, etc. And just to realize that perhaps we didn't know anything, <laughs> but the adventure has been really good so far because we have learned a lot. And I think that the most rewarding for the experience in these years is that we start with this uh, just by passion, let's say, and this notion of not knowing what we suppose to know that we not knew uh, just allowed us to experiment a lot and, you know, have a lot of failures as well, but keep the, the energy on experimenting with several formats and, yeah, and especially with printed books that even we publish a lot in, in blogs. We have the digital books as part of our titles collection, but we always uh, love the printed books. And so we always try to manage how to make uh, some outputs in print just because they have another kind of permanency, the texture, the smell, you know, all these more uh, connected to the senses, let's say. So you mentioned that you were, prior to starting DPR, you were editing and working for other publications. Are, were those publications within the architecture industry? And are those publications that you would be uh, able to tell us about? Yeah, yeah. By the way, the, fir the first related job uh, with uh, architectural printing I, I had was here in Barcelona in a magazine that doesn't exist anymore. It was called Constructiva, and it was about architecture in the most... Uh, Common sense, let's say it was about building, make a, a criticism about the buildings, but also more technically focused. And then after that, after two or three years working for that magazine, I started working with another publishing house here in Barcelona that does this kind of uh, books about uh, sustainable architecture or tiny houses. You know, they give you a topic. And then you do this research and invite the guest uh, writers or the architects you want to publish the projects. And this was about two more years, perhaps, before we decided to start uh, DPR Barcelona. So was it a passion for, for print that brought you to these jobs prior to DPR? Or was the experience what made you so passionate about about what you do? To be sincere, let's say that it's a mix of personal and professional interest uh, because uh, it was by coincidence on the same years uh, I was uh, having my maternity leave because I have two daughters with Cesar, who is my partner as well. <laughs> and you know, these uh, first months that you are with your newborn baby are like super exciting in some terms, but to be sincere, really boring in another way. <laughs> uh, I decided to look for a, a job that I can do uh, with a more flexible time in that a traditional job from, you know, eight to five or this kind of works. So writing the, was like, let's say, a solution that also was related with this passion for not only for architecture, but also for literature in general terms. Uh, we love literature, poetry, all this kind of 
related with books topics. So we start like doing that as a time to manage this personal moment of our life and also to have a professional output, let's say, that out of the office. And after the first or second issue of this magazine, decide now I want to keep doing that because I love this, this how this is evolving. So what is it about print as opposed to digital publishing, you know, uh, internet publishing? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because when we decided to start DPR Barcelona, our first book was an online book. It was not printed because we didn't have the resources to print. So we did all the work of researching, designing, etc. And we were looking for a publisher to do this book. And you know how this industry is, and especially in those years, that was also the breakdown of the publishing industry around 2008 that came together with the economical a breakdown of, of those years. So publishers were not investing anymore in, you know, this kind of books. So after the, I don't know, the depression, let's say, of the first week by so many rejections, we decided, okay, no, let, let's do it. We don't have the money to print, but let's keep moving on with all this material we have. And after that, with the experience and the good welcoming of that book that we publish online, we decided to invest our own, own money in the second book that was a printed one. Also because we realized that the, the topics we were uh, talking about in those years have this very good welcoming, very uh, good reviews. And we decided to take the risk to start uh, investing in the printed books. Yeah, you started at a, uh, that was very ambitious of you to start a print uh, business in 2007. I mean, but even as difficult as it was in 2007 to to start a print operation, I imagine it, it has only become more difficult in the last 10 years. What are your observations in the print industry that have happened since since you started DPR in 2007 until now? Yeah, I think that, yeah, you are right, that it, it became a more difficult. But at the same time, I think it... It, well, this is for our personal experience, what I will, I'm going to say now, but I think that it become more difficult for big publishing houses, let's say. We all, I think we have witnessed the breakdown of several of the most well-known biggest architectural publishing houses in around 2011 or 10. But at the same time, there was a, an emergence of a small and independent publishing houses more focused on niche let's say. So the, the idea is not to print, you know, 10,000 books and to reach everyone out there, but people interested in certain topics. For example, in our case, it's more related with criticism and also city related with political, cultural, social issues, but not about certain buildings or star architects or whatever. So on those years, this niche was not so explored, at least here in Central Europe. So this opened the doors to the topics we were talking about. So I think it's not as difficult as it may seem, depending on your expectations. If you want to become the new, let's say, Tashen or, <laughs> or Thames and Wholesome, perhaps it's difficult to start now. But if you want to focus on a niche on very concrete topics, I think there is a space. So Ethel, you know, I want to step a little way, a little bit from print, because I think one of the things that I found fascinating about um, just looking at your website and looking at your history is the the kind of R&D that you are kind of, I guess that's what it is, a publishing R&D. So with the Arca Futures and the AR in your uh, in your publications, I mean, the first one I think I've encountered was U-Fields and Weaponized Architecture. Could you talk a little bit about Arca Futures, which I found quite fascinating as a way of putting together, I almost, almost say a collaborative kind of book publishing. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned this project because, you know, we are uh, very passionate with this right now because it's the evolution of some ideas that we have been exploring in more, for more than six years now. And until now, uh, we found, you know, the perfect technician, the designer. We have this good context of the Archifuture uh, books 
And it was the perfect moment, let's say, to try to explore this uh, idea that the reader is not a passive reader, but they can also collect uh, and, and have the role of editors at, at the same time. You know, they have all the contents there. And with this uh, system that allows uh, compilations and personal selections, they can, after reading or selecting the contents they want to have, they can make their own collections. And it opens the possi endless possibilities because until now we have the contents of three printed books split by individual, as individual essays. So you can combine, let's say, three articles of the volume one with two of volume three, five of volume four, and make your own personal compilation, depending on the kind of topics you are interested on. And also it has a lot of possibilities uh, as a pedagogical tool. For example, if you are building, a, let's say, a syllabus, if you are a professor, you can uh, look by topics using the tags uh, that we have put on there and so you can create collections by authors, by topics, by years. And I don't know, we are super excited to give this possibility that everyone can explore, collect, and try to build different narratives with the same contents. You know, it's very, it's fascinating the, the results when you see the compilations done by others that transform the, the fixed narrative you have in your mind and give you another point of view by the, by the act of uh, collecting and compiling these books. Yeah, I really liked that. I got the sense, I did one today and and just to see what it was like. And I got the sense of, um, I was the curator of my own kind of um, idea about what I wanted to read. And and that's, to me, sounds uh, quite revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, another another thing that we are super excited about is that after, as, as I said before, uh, many years exploring how to make this possible in, in a technical way, let's say. Now it's a system that we can apply to other institutions or we can work. For example, I was talking about the pedagogical possibilities that it has so we can work with uh, architectural schools. And once we have solved the system that we have now working, it can be applied to many, many contents. and. It's like the Library of Babel described by Borges. You know, it's like, yeah, every book is the, it's evolving all the time and and you never know where where are you going to finish when you start reading or compiling. So and also now the the going back to the first questions about the passion for printer, now that we are improving and we'll be ready in, in March, I think, is that these compilations that you have a ex been exploring today, you will be able to print your compilation by print-on-demand service. So it's also the, the second step, let's say, you can combine, be your own editor or your own curator, but then you can also receive at home your own, your printed book. So this uh, possibility of combine all the digital tools that we have now and and keep the passion for printed books, I think it's fascinating for us here. That's really exciting. You know, I think part of the big vision that we had with Ed when launching that was to treat it as an experiment in exploring how to hybridize alternative forms of media using print. And it sounds like the Future Architecture Platform is doing a really interesting, taking a really interesting approach to to doing that, allowing users to curate their own print publications. Yes, yes. To be sincere, yes, because as, uh, as I said before, we have been trying to develop this uh, system for many years. And, you know, it's this moment when you have the, the, the institution that understand, because sometimes when you talk uh, with institutions and and you have to fill these bureaucratic processes to, you know, to get the fundings or whatever. If they don't understand the, this language, let's say, it's very difficult to communicate the idea. And the people from Future Architecture has been super uh, supportive. And also we are taking advantage, of course, of the lot of good proposals, materials, ideas that are there, that they are worth to be published. Because... Uh, 
Otherwise, we, we in the industry, of, in the publishing industry of architecture, we have all the big names all around and, and we often visit the architecture schools because even if we don't teach, but we give workshops and lectures and we realize that mostly all the students only receive the information of the mainstream voices and all these young creatives that are part of the Future Architecture platform, uh, they have proposals and ideas that are worth to give visibility. So with this uh, project, we are trying also to do so. So Ethel, you mentioned one of the ways that that you are able to thrive in, in print right now, considering how difficult it is, is by creating niche publications. Can you talk about some of the publications that you've been releasing lately and, and how those fit into specific niches? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, for example, one of our most recent books, it's called Exploration in Urban Practice. And it summarized the experience of a pedagogical experiment uh, initiated by Raum Labor in Berlin. And I think the the connection with this idea of the niche that we were talking is be, is because apart from the experience of understanding the city, as a school, all the city as a pedagogical a place, uh, as a place uh, to exchange knowledge, they have been researching in different formats, making some special interventions, but also some discursive dinners, dialogues, field trips. And in this book, there is a summary of all of that, but also the spirit of the school has been immersed in the book by trying to let's say, to replicate this diversity of formats in the book itself. So in the book, you have a, essays, but also you have conversations, you have some graphic ideas. And I think this is a, a book that it's very, it's for a niche of persons that it's interesting in urban practice, but also for the niche of persons that are interested now in the transformation of uh, education that really needs a shift nowadays, in my opinion. Because, you know, there are, we have all, yeah, we have all witnessed how the schools uh, in the past 10, 15 years with capitalism and neoliberalism has become more a business than a really place for to learn. So all these motivations are part of the, what gives form to this book. And also another recent book, it's called Into the Great Wide Open and has been edited by architect uh, from Vienna, Andreas Rumpfuber. And it's also like a claim to understand new ways of practicing architecture, not only building, but also uh, by theory and criticism and re mostly related with labor and how the digital tools we have nowadays, instead of giving us more freedom as the promise of, <laughs> you know, since the year of constant and all the avant-garde architects that they were thinking that automation will give us more freedom. All these digital tools and these ways of working are becoming um, more and more a pressure to be connected all the time, to be working all the time. And uh, we are, let's say, a slave, a slaves of our own practice. So it's a claim against that in a very critical, uh, but also optimistic way, let's say, that I really like the it's not a depressive book, but also give glimpses of other ways of working. So the niche, I think it's it's there is in the people who who is working in these new ways and using these kind of tools. You know, I'm based in Barcelona, but I can be connected with you here. But then perhaps I will not sleep because I have a deadline to apply for a funding. So. We never stop working, so it's a let's say a positive criticism to that. So where where can people buy your books? Or how how do you manage the distribution uh, both domestically and internationally? <laughs> this is a big question <laughs> that we are exploring. Also, new ways of trying to explore new ways of distribution because it's one of the most hard tasks for any publisher, I think, especially independent publishing houses. Oh yeah, we're learning all about that right now. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not it's not as easy as one would think. No, 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 it's not easy. Uh, but we start working in 2007 with a distributor that on the most hard years of the financial crisis, they declared bankruptcy. So we they stopped distributing our books for more than a year. 
and we start trying to explore new ways. And now we have a different distributors. We have, for example, one who here from here in Spain, another one who distribute our books in in Europe. And until now, we are uh, starting conversations to finally have our books in the U.S. And also because of that, and by our own learning experience, we have set up this two months ago, our online e-commerce, let's say. Now our books can be also buy online. And of course, you have to pay the shipping like in Amazon or any online shop, but now we are able to to manage that as well. And it has been very rewarding these two months because uh, it was uh, beyond our expectation, the, the movement and the people buying our books, even uh, most uh, all the titles, let's say, not, not only the new releases. So it's very motivating to see that it's, we can not only rely or depend on, on traditional distributors, but only also trying to combine with these new forms of trying to bring our books to other, to other places by using e-commerce. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of distribution, it's, uh, it, I, I think it's, uh, quite difficult for a lot of independent publishers because from our, from our research and our investigations into, into distributors, a lot of them seem to work on a, a model that is relies on a lot of faith among the publishers that because most distributors want you to send a bunch of books and they will sell as many as they can and give you their, you know, give you a cut, but uh, you don't get any unsold inventory back. And that means that you kind of have to just trust that those distributors are actually selling those books or not selling them. But yeah, it's it's a tricky situation. I think that uh, I think the print industry is just hurting from every angle. So I was thinking maybe we can give a, a little insight into our own experience with getting Ed off the ground. You know, Arconnect has been involved in an ongoing print project called Bracket for many years now. But we have been we've been relatively offhand uh, with that in terms of distribution and printing because we've been working with Actar, which is another Barcelona-based publisher who has kind of taken a lot of the uh, the mystery out of the equation for us because we uh, they they do all the stuff that's uh, a little more tricky to but but it was intentional for us for. Uh, with Ed to do it all ourselves, to figure it out, to kind of understand, to crack this, uh, you know, nut of uh, architectural publishing. So we we have started from scratch on our own. And in the process, we've learned quite a bit. And we um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about about where we started with this. Nicholas, uh, you and I, this conversation, a conversation we had probably about over a year ago yeah, about how to get some of our content into print originated out of a conversation we were having just about you know the quality of some of the longer form pieces that were that we were publishing on Arconnect and the difficulty it was for that type of highly considered high quality content to compete with the kind of content that people tend to flock to these days on the internet mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think something that we've been talking about a lot and I think is really interesting is that there's a presumed reader for both online for digital content and for print content. And the kind of presumed digital reader is has a short attention span, uh, kind of will only give a few minutes to a piece while the, the print reader will dig in, sit in the armchair and, and really dig into a, a piece. Um, I think that our connect, one of the things that has always defined our connect is that we give a lot more generosity to the online reader. We've always kind of believed in them, <laughs> believed in their ability to sit down and read a 2,000, 3,000 word piece. And I think that Ed in some ways comes out of that, extends from that generosity of trying to really believe that you can create this long form content that's really interesting, that digs deeper than kind of like your average kind of a hot take that you find online and that the reader will participate in that. And I think that print is better suited for that in a lot of ways. But then the fact that it's a cross platform, uh, both digital and print project, maintains kind of that, that that broader sense that we're we're really trying to engage with this particular type of reader who's committed to the content and the ability to archive this highly selected curated content from our website into something that is permanent and tangible is was another big motivating factor behind the decision to uh, extend into print 
and to cure it as well, I think. Uh, the, the idea that you can, when you have something in just a flow of digital content, you have like these kind of individual ideas, but when you, you can organize them together, you're making more of a rhetorical statement. You're, you're taking a position. And I think that's really important as well. Absolutely. It's, um, I, I've used the analogy a number of times while trying to describe or maybe justify our move to print with the music industry and this kind of on-demand economy that we've found ourselves in where people these days get what they want whenever they want it. And it's usually little bits and pieces of a greater, a greater package that used to be delivered and sold as a complete story, like uh, albums, for example, used to be created as a well-considered grouping of of tracks that kind of tell a story and and are designed to be a whole you know with a beautifully printed packaging and everything and we we've lost that which i'm you know i i still remember the days of of sitting down with an album and enjoying it from beginning to end and you know making sense of the kind of the longer arc of a story and the and the theme that that's addressed throughout and i think that print offers that opportunity again when you're sitting down with print you can't be distracted by you know a little flashing banner on the right side of the page that will might take you somewhere else and and change your your train of thought so that's another reason by uh moving into print but it's um it's been quite a process yes it has. it's <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot more work than than uh, publishing for the internet. The internet is kind of a disposable medium. Mm -hmm. It's definitely that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, with, with print, I know that, Nicholas, you spent hours and hours just tracking down licensing mm -hmm. permits for, for content that we were using. The kind, of, the, kind of, uh, the kind of bits of content that most publishers wouldn't even consider, you know, like archival magazine covers from the 60s, for example. Mm -hmm. Any any web publisher would just throw that up online into an article, no problem. But, you know, when it comes to print, the permanence of it requires a higher level of I don't know, overview on, on how that type of stuff is treated. Yeah. What are some of the other well, I say the whole thing, the whole temporality of the whole pro of the of putting together journalists as this being my first endeavor with this with print is so radically different than digital, where you're kind of just kind of always moving forward. Instead, you're like you you have a ton of compressed work you have to do, and then all of a sudden there's a period where it's in the designer's hand, and, and you're kind of just biting your fingers. And so that's something that you're that's different and difficult. And it's so interesting and, and really exciting actually to see how this content comes to life yeah. after getting transformed by the designers the designers of that that we're working with i have to i have to uh credit them is folder studio in los angeles they're they're based out of chinatown in, in los angeles and they just do amazing work they've done a lot of work with the uh architecture industry but the way that they were able to translate this content into uh visual format that I think really tells the story that much more effectively mm -hmm. for each piece. That's something that we don't experience with the web. I mean, on online, there are templates. I mean, some, some publishers like New York Times are doing some amazing stuff with original designs for individual articles that, um, that are really pushing the boundaries of how, how stories can be told online through editorial. But 99% of uh, online publishing is template-based, so it's the same it's the same format for every story, regardless of what that story is. But print gives you an opportunity to move out of that limitation. So I just, I, I hate to be so nostalgic about this, but um, I think a lot of the thread that's been going through this conversation has been just how wonderful it is to have a book, an object in your hand, and how it's kind of a, 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 a set aside of the day where you don't get interrupted by your Twitter feed or whatever. And we we have been talking about this as this sort of nostalgic way of, of having a, a book in your hands. I consider myself a modernist, but I love the nostalgia of that moment. I, I've been lately reading Rainer de Graaff's book, Four Walls and a Roof, and I've very much been setting aside time in the evenings. I have given up doing any kind of freelance or side jobs, which I think, Ethel, you had mentioned, we tend to work all the time. I've sort of said to myself in 2018, I need to stop working all the time. And I'm sitting in the evenings and reading a couple chapters of Four Walls and a Roof, and I'm really enjoying it. And I know that I'm learning something from it that is not what I'm learning every day when I'm on Twitter scrolling through and having 20 conversations with 20 different people. So, I, I mean, I, I feel like I, as the modernist in me, wants to reject the nostalgia of all of this. And yet I, I love it. I do. I love the materiality of the book. And as architects, maybe that is part of what we we love about it. It's a matter of speed and concentration and even the, you know, 
the gesture and the 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 body posture in front right. of the book because you can re rely on a sofa and be relaxed, let's say. And when we are in the computer, we have another position of the body that makes you to be like, let's say, available for a push notification, a tweet, or so. <laughs> even this physical disposition of the the body and the the and what this transmits to your mind, I think, has to do in the differences of reading online and reading in paper. So it's not it's not only the 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 linear narrative because also it's depending on the book if it's a collection of essays that like Ed for example you can not not follow the linear narrative and you can read one essay then go to the back of the magazine and read a, read another it's not only about that it's I think it's a a mix up of many many different things that is not interruption is not being online but also how your body is more relaxing at different position and and the sum of all these facts i think that it's where the nostalgic touch comes <laughs> i think it's this question of nostalgia is really interesting because there's another way you could reframe it which is that it's actually incredibly forward thinking or very present to get into print because because we're so saturated with digital media at all times that now more than ever we actually need this kind of radically different physical experience of reading a book I like to think about it that way. Absolutely. And that's what I was that's what I was thinking too is that it you're present. You're you're present in that moment and you can't you can't like flip to a television channel like the way you can flip to another website. And uh, you know the way it's very difficult for me to read the um F architecture piece on the website as opposed to sitting here with the ed book and publication reading it. And I think but when I'm reading something it's usually at the end of the day. So I've already stared at my computer for 10 hours. Now do I have the eye strain? Do I have the eye energy to send focus another couple of hours looking at uh, and reading um, heavy text on a, on, a, uh, on a flickering computer screen when I can sit down and rest my eyes and focus on being present and read the text on a piece of paper? To me, it's even all of what you said, it, it even adds another layer for me. It's technological. Uh, it's the technology that's forcing me to kind of revert to and be able to underline the book, highlight a passage, um, take notes in the margin that I can't do on a website. Absolutely. And beyond this being a clear trend lately, I think uh, among a lot of people that we see, especially us that, that spend a lot of time in front of the computers, even just recently as yesterday, a, a number of Apple investors have been pressuring Apple over um, releasing more, more research data into the psychological risks of children uh, relying on screens, you know, um, on the Apple products that they're, that they're creating. I think that we're at a point right now where we will be looking back later and and kind of laughing at how attached we we have been to to screens and how um, detached we've be become to the material world. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that technology will increase in many ways, but I think people's need to to um, become more involved with the tangible is is increasingly important, and we're starting to realize the the effects of that. Yeah, I think what I was about to say is, has a relation with this, that it's also the sense of permanence. You know, when we said before that books have, has this uh, sense of permanence, that mm -hmm. you have it and it's there, but also it's permanence of the things we add to the books as readers. Uh, you were talking about underlying on taking side notes. And if you are reading online or you put a tweet, you can delete the tweet or you can, you know, just delete a Word file and it's gone. But in the book, even if you want to erase uh, an underlying done in pencil, something remains there. And it's like creating the, you know, our, yeah, our steps when we are walking and learning something is permanent there about our history of reading, of learning. It's not only the permanency of the of the author and the publisher who gives you the book, but also how you interact with that. And this is very, it's a human issue that let's say that we feel that we have that relationship with the object. I think that also can be, um, that plays a part in for the writer as well. I've noticed that writers tend to, and this is speaking very generally and broadly, but writers tend to care more or put more effort into something that's going to be in print, something that's going to be archived. They, there's a kind of 
caring that they do that's that's greater. And as a writer myself, I, I tend to do the same. Um, of course, there's exceptions to that. There's some really exciting digital platforms right now. But I do think that when you know that your work's going to be archived, there's a different way of relating to it, which I think is has been important for Ed. It's funny. I mean, that as a publisher, we've also seen that there is an increased value placed on print advertising. Even though we don't advertise in Ed, advertisers that we do work with are always asking if there's an opportunity to advertise in, in print because there is still that kind of leftover belief that print advertising is worth more, which is valid on many points. I mean, it's uh, we're, we've got to a point where I think people are getting really good at ignoring online advertising. And magazines like Wallpaper, for example, they really they really kind of uh, set the bar high from the beginning because of the quality of advertising that they integrated into their magazine, which almost became indiscernible from their content. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I remember. Also, an old issue of Volume Magazine. Mm -hmm. I don't remember which one, but uh, they have managed to fit all the advertisement with the same design as the magazine. So it was part of the narrative itself. These kind of experiments are really nice. Mm, yeah. Your understanding of the difference between, you know, how can you include this advertisement as part of the narrative or the statements you want to to to, to give with the with your work. <laughs> yeah. I, I like them, yeah. So Ethel, I just had a um a quick question about the about DPR as a practice. Could you talk a little bit about that? It seems very much different than the nature of most practices. You don't seem, I mean, at least from the website, I can't really discern and it seems pretty obvious, or at least it seems obvious to me that you're, you're not interested in building things, but more broadly critiquing architecture, society, culture, technology, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about your practice? Yes, yes, of course. By the way, you what you said, it's absolutely right. Uh, it's not because we don't like buildings. We all need uh, shelters <laughs> in, in our cities, you know, offices, etc. But we think that, especially when we started in 2007, there was this here in Spain, and I think in mostly all Europe at least, uh, this big boom of star architects and a lot of uh, books, like coffee table books, just uh, a publishing photograph of buildings, 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 massive buildings, the same kind of building here, there, and everywhere, not contextualized. So we have this motivation to talk about architecture as many other things, not only as buildings, you know, uh, the relationship between the city and the building, the relationship between the people who inhabit the cities, the also the relation between architecture and economy, uh, because there, these were the things that were uh, changing our cities in, in those years with the financial crisis, the emergence of new technologies. So we were immersed in all this uh, new field, new environment, new, uh, new inputs. And at least here in Spain, nobody was talking about that. So we felt motivated to, to start researching and and trying to give a space to this uh, other discourse, also from the architectural point of view, how all these things that were happening out there has this connection with, with architecture. And that's why we define ourselves not only as a publishing house, but also as a research studio, because even if we publish uh, books by authors, we are not the authors uh, of our own books. We write for other magazines, of course, and other books, but the process that we like to, that we use to manage with each book, it's a, in a very close relationship with authors and editors. So we use every single book that we publish as a, a space for discussion and researching. We don't like, you know, or it's not that we don't like, but it's it, it just comes spontaneously that when an author or an, an editor approach to us and say, look, I have this book, even without thinking, we start giving feedback, discussing the topic, let's do it. And we are uh, end up doing a very close and, and collaborative work for, for each book. And this is part of the constant and ongoing research process that we are dealing all the time. Yeah, And not only with the topics or, or the contents of the book, but also trying to understand and figure out which can be the best format for these books. Because even if we are 
uh, printed matter lovers, uh, as we have been discussing before, but there are certain contents that we think needs to be out in a faster way or available for a biggest audience that the printed book can reach. So we combine with digital, with ebooks that can be downloaded in Kindle or or for in a pub a format. So the the constant research we we do with every book is uh, based on these two topics: the the topic of the book itself and the format that this book needs to to communicate its content. So I think these are the, the two biggest motivations of DPR Barcelona. So where you do kind of move into architecture, it seems like the two projects that seem uh, that I love, um, by the way, are Tourniquet and uh, Tunneling Gaza. Really, both seem to, or both are appear to be critiques on colonialism. And could you talk about those two projects? They're very, they're fascinating as, as ideas. And um, I think they're really says a lot about many things going on currently. Yes, yes, we have, you know, both of us, Cesar and myself, we study architecture. So even if now we have more than 10 years devoted to the publishing industry, let's say, but, you know, we have all this uh, background of trying to also to to take out our obsessions in, in with this kind of architect, architectural speculations when we have time or the topic motivate us. And yes, Tunnel in Gaza, for example, it's a, a proposal to uh, use these tunnels that people use there to smuggle goods, any kind of goods from food to weapons, and try to give this, this infrastructure, because it's a massive infrastructure out there uh, between Israel and Palestine to give other kind of uses, just as, a, of course, the, the proposal is very speculative and it cannot be built. It's a massive uh, machine, but uh, it's like a call for attention of the things that are happening there, because when you propose something that it's a utopia or a dystopia and cannot be built, at least you are calling attention and creating awareness of a situation. And also it's the same with tourniquet because uh, the criticism, you know, the, there was this competition to do something in the frontier between Mexico City and, and U.S. that it's also again now on the, on the media because of the wall that Trump uh, is going to build. And the competition was claiming for people to do uh, infrastructure to host all the people that uh, go from Mexico, immigrant, uh, illegal, let's say, immigrant uh, people that go from Mexico to the U.S. And there are a lot of things that people is not taking in account because for us, and also because we are migrants as well, we have lived this situation and no lot of uh, situations in Central America and in Mexico City that are really inhuman situations and giving a building only spaces for social services can be good until certain point, but you are not, a, let's say you are not working in the basis of the problem. You are just uh, working in the surface. So with Tourniquet, we wanted to create awareness of the, the deep problem that provokes this uh, tendency to migrate and to abandon Central American countries and trying to reach the American dream and only to be rejected and try to research in deep in the, in the basis of the problem, which has a, an economic, it's based on economical issue, inequality and economical issues and not to design only this space to have a, you know, shelter for two or three nights and food for two or three nights, and then the problem keeps going on. So the, the motivation with these, two pro, uh, with these two projects was the same, was to, to create awareness of the basis of the problems we are living nowadays. It's like, you know, the same nowadays here in, in, in Europe with the refugee crisis, crisis let's say. Uh, the other day I, I heard a quote that was saying, why we call them refugees if we don't give refuge? So the, 
you know, it's a very simple quote, but it summarizes, let's say, what we were trying to, to do with these other two projects, trying to call awareness of the, the, the discourse, the rhetorics, the languages we use that never touch the, the basis of the problems, only the surface. So we wanted to, to get in deep into the basis. Well, it always seemed, the, at least from how you've described it, and it, the question that's put out by the brief is it, people accept the question as is instead of turning the question on itself. And it seems like those two projects that you've uh, talked about really turn the question in on itself and say, well, why is this the question we should be answering? This is the, here's the problem we should be turning it around. So I really enjoyed that. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. I really like that you you take you took a look to this project because oh your website. I mean, I I know a little bit about your work, but going through your website for the past couple of days, I'm like, I am doing the wrong fucking thing. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> Ethel and Ethel and Nick, I um generally at the end of this podcast, I ask two questions, but I wanted to reframe it just a little bit differently. So, what book? And what album or CD should we be buying that we don't already have? Not a not a download, not a Spotify, not a not a fucking <laughs> online publication. But what what would you recommend today to purchase for us to read or to listen to? This is a difficult question because <laughs> I have a pile of more than fifty books in my desk. <laughs> Let me say <laughs> a book I really recommend. By the way, yes, I have one here that I love. It's one by Svetlana Boim. It's called The Future of Nostalgia. I think it's uh, yeah, it's appropriate because this discussion between printed and digital and the nostalgic feeling we were discussing mm-hmm. before. Uh, I think it's a uh, and it talks about cities and and our relationship with with the cities and the built environment that we build along our life and how nostalgia is related with that. So this is one I, I can recommend. And records? Huh. Let me see. Now Nowadays, my on my iPhone, let's say, it, one of the things that is uh, have a constant presence is one of the artists is Yola Tengo. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming to my town soon. <laughs> nice. Uh, but I don't know which, which album to recommend because I, I have so many favorites by them. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Perhaps popular songs by Yola Tengo and the future of nostalgia by Esbetlana Boim. What about Nick? Yeah, what about Nick? <laughs> uh, what I'm reading right now, and I just started it, so I can't really say much about it besides the title, is uh, The New Way of the World on Neoliberal Society by uh, Pierre Dardot and Christiane Laval. And so I think that's going to, I'm offsetting that, which is kind of sobering, with uh, just a playlist of, playlist of disco hits. Um, so doing some disco hits, some nineties, uh, early nineties rave music and, uh, reading about new. No, 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 that's not, that's not going to work. <laughs> no, no Spotify playlist. This is, we're, we're in the present moment. You got to actually pick an, album pick an album that you have to listen to. You have to flip it over on your, on your turntable. Okay. Yeah. Look at the jacket while you're listening. Well, that's it's in keeping with the theme. It's in keeping. Of course. Of course. Then I'll go with, uh. I've actually been returning a little bit to um, Sweetheart of the Rodeo by the Birds. Mm. Nice. So how about that? That's a little nostalgic. I love the Birds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, That's wonderful, excellent though. Excellent choices. Yeah. And that book is so Nicholas Carodi. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think that's it for today about our conversation about architectural print. Thanks so much to Ethel and Nicholas for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you. We will be featuring a a screen print from one of DPR Barcelona's latest titles shortly on Arconnect, so stay tuned for that. You can now follow the screen print tag on Arconnect so that you can get updates every time we we publish a new screen print series uh, or a new screen print piece that is uh, screen print is our series of sharing pieces or chapters of independently published architectural titles. It's one of our ways of trying to put the spotlight on really great work that's being done in print around the world. So stay tuned for that soon. That's probably going to be coming up in the next week or so. And also just another reminder or plug, as uh, it may be more appropriately called, Ed, our print journal, 
quarterly print journal. Ed number one is uh, flying off the shelves. It's getting really great feedback. We would love for those of you that have been thinking about buying it or maybe have just been hearing about it today to get a copy. The theme is architecture of architecture, which has caused a little bit of confusion among some that have not read Nicholas's excellently worded uh, introduction to the magazine. But maybe Nicholas, you could just kind of give a, a brief description of what that theme uh, meant. Yeah, it's um, kind of something I've come back to time and time again. It's originally from this little essay by the philosopher Derrida, where he mentions it. And the idea essentially is that architecture appears as common sense. In fact, it maybe is like the most common sense appearing thing. We take it for granted that we know what architecture is, but architecture is in fact a designed thing itself. Um, It's incredibly mutable. It changes through time. And you could look at that in any variety of ways. There's, of course, you know, what the forms that are being created are, but also the form of the profession, for example, uh, where architecture isn't just the act of building, but it's also um, a series of tests you have to do, a litany of educational tests and also professional tests. And it's a form of debt for many people. It's a, it's a million things, many of which are designed or accidentally happen to exclude certain people over other people. You see that with in both kind of terms of class and gender in architecture. So the idea was to look at architecture as a designed object from a variety of angles, see from whether to do with labor, with gender, with economics, with ecology, with technology, with politics, to show that architecture is always changing. The, the idea being that if you can confront the way the architecture is designed, then you can start redesigning it in order to make it a more equitable field. Well said. And then we've got Ed number two coming up in the next couple of months. And we've had a call for submissions on the site for a while. We're still looking for more. The theme of that issue is disaster. And uh, that word disaster can be interpreted in a variety of different ways as described in our call. So please, if you have anything that you would like to submit, go ahead and do that. I think the deadline is approaching soon. It's end of the month. January 30th. January 30th. We just did an extension of two weeks. So Yes. So if you saw the extension was a little too tight for you before, you may be happy to realize that it's been extended. And we are very excited about we've been talking about new ways of uh, printing this next version. I think you can expect something a little different. We're having a lot of fun with it. We're looking at more ways to hybridize it. Yeah. So go ahead and and, uh, submit for that. And also one more thing, bracket number five on sharing is also soliciting submissions right now. And the online application and submission form has just opened today, uh, the day before this podcast is being released. So go ahead, go to brkt.org and submit something on the theme sharing if that is a theme that is that you've got something to share. Um, All right. Thanks again to everybody. Very interesting stuff. And we will talk to everybody next time. Thank you. Thanks, Ethel. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much.